All right, we're in a series called Welcome Home. And what we're doing is looking at our, our mission of seeing people deeply transformed by God's grace through the gospel of King Jesus in Memphis to the ends of the earth. And we've been really focusing on that language of transformation. You remember we talked about that we are formed and transformed. We looked at the language of, Jermaine, can you put it on that first graph? We've had some, some clicker issues, but it's working today. Look at that. This is, I think, how people are formed. Um, but today we're focusing especially on, on this piece right here, relationships. Um, I read a book this week called The Relational Soul. It's by a counselor and a spiritual director. And really, they're, they're trying to take attachment theory, a theory of, of therapy and counseling developed in the 1970s that seems to have a lot of overlap with, with Christian thinking. In fact, I was with one of, our, um, one of our, our folks, Zach Shapley. He's a therapist here in town. And he was saying, like, this is his, his model of counseling. But these authors, they say that we are formed by our relationships and our attachments. Let me just share some of their words. They say, we come into the world neurologically wired to make connections, to attach to others. Like, we're designed for connection. We're created for it. Um, they say, when our connections are healthy, then we, we have good attachment. We can attach in healthy ways later on in life. But when our early attachments are unhealthy, then it kind of sets us up for problems later, and we have attachment issues. But they say, it is virtually impossible you see it? Virtually impossible to overstate the significance of our learned relational attachment system in the early years. That we are, we are inevitably, unconsciously, before we're speaking, we are formed by relationship. We are formed by people, our, our moms and, and dads. As, as we look into their eyes and learn the mimicry of emotion and finally we put language to it, before we ever choose anything, before we can even say anything, we are formed by relationship. They say it has a profound influence on our relational experience as adults. The quality and character of the programming we received early in life establishes a pattern of attachment that controls our relationships later in life. Do you see how formed we are by relationships? And they say, and how we relate is how we relate. That's kind of a recurring theme throughout the book. What they mean is that the way that you relate to mom and dad, your initial attachments, that then has an impact on how you relate to brother and sister and how you relate to husband and wife and how you relate to basically everybody, but also how you relate to God. Our, our relation, we are so formed by relationship before we're even conscious of it. But then they say that we're also transformed by relationship. Um, and so... If you want to be transformed, they say it's not a new idea. You don't just need to listen to sermons. You don't just need to read a book. They said, we're glad you're reading our book. But the thing that transforms people is that you need an attachment pattern that nurtures trust through actual relationships. You cannot change in the absence of relationships. That's what they're saying. At a deep level, at that, that soul level of how you attach to people and how you connect to God and others. It takes relationships. We are formed by relationships. We are transformed by relationships. And I, I think that God kind of understood this. And so he not only relates to us in a personal way through the, the spirit of Christ in us, but then he's created a beloved family for us to experience those trust structures to see transformation. 
God designed the church to be a family where we are, we are learning how to trust and how to love one another. But this is a problem, right? So the, the problem is that most of us don't experience the church's family. There's a lot of reasons for this. Some of us, we go into church and maybe you wanted to experience the church's family, but you got hurt by family. And in some ways, yeah, there's, nothing, there's nothing more like family than that. <laughs> because we all come from broken homes and broken families. Every one of our moms and dads was sinful in some way. So every one of our attachments that forms us is altered. It's not, it's not ideal. It's not perfect. No, no one, even people with great parents, still have sinful parents. That, that's how, where we all come in. And that same thing then happens in church. But there's other reasons why the church sometimes isn't experienced as family. One, I think it's that some of us, we go into church thinking it's an event. Church is a family. No, church is an event. It happens on Sundays. I go to it. I sit and then I stand and then I listen and then I leave and I'll see you next week. That's church. Church is an event that I go to. It has a start time and a stop time. It's a place maybe that I go to. But that's not the biblical vision. Church is a, church is a family. Now, that's not everybody here, right? Most of the people who are kind of interested in Oikos are looking for something more than just church as an event. You're looking for church as a family. But even for those of us who are looking for a sense of community at church, very often what we really want is friends, not family. Friends, not family. We want people who are like us. People we have shared interests and things in common. We want to choose them. And I don't know if you know this about family, but you don't choose family. We want friends, not family. We want community, yes, but we want to curate community. But that's also not the biblical vision of church as family. Uh, church as family is like, it's a reality that is to be recognized that Jesus Christ has created by his Holy Spirit, and then we step into, regardless of our similarities. Church's event, we want friends, not family, but maybe the other kind of big piece is just about the busyness and pace of our lives. Even just what it means to be active in a church has changed dramatically from when I was a kid. Used to, researchers would say, you're active in a church if you go three times a week. Now, researchers are saying you're active in a church if you go three times a month. <laughs> it's, it's a lot different. Because the pace of life has accelerated, it means the experience of church's family has declined. I mean, imagine this. Imagine you have family members who you have never seen at Thanksgiving. Like they don't come home for the table. What do you call those? Sometimes, some families, you might call them the black sheep. They never come around. But in the church, we call them deacons. Because there's no expectation that we will actually share a table with one another or be in one another's homes. If we're just too busy for that. And then in replacement, having some mic issues, I'm sorry. In replacement for that, we have what we call online community, which is an oxymoron, isn't it? Um, but what researchers are showing today, and most of us are feeling this, is that we may be connected to hundreds or even thousands of people in our social media lives but the more time we spend online, the greater our sense of loneliness. We're, we're seeing this that there's a loneliness epidemic that's happening in the United States in, in the last few years. Not like the last 50 years, the last five years. People's number of close friendships has dropped from over three to under two. It's dropped by about 50%. We just don't have 
room in our hearts and in our lives for friends, for community. And we're experiencing loneliness. The loneliness rate's just going up and up and up. It's, it's pretty startling. What do we do about this? What does this say? Back to the relational soul. They say, what does this loneliness tell us about ourselves? The, did you know the U.S. Surgeon General? He says, like the, the great diseases that are facing America. He says, it's not heart disease. It's not, it's not diabetes. The, the thing I see most often is loneliness. What, what does this tell us about us? Be it chronic or acute, slight or significant. Loneliness is proof of our relational design. At the core of our being is this truth that we are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. And that's, of course, because we are made, as they say, we are designed in the likeness of a God who himself is relational. In the essence of God, there's a Father and a Son and a Spirit. There's, there's shared love. The, the Trinitarian picture of God is one of community. The God that we are made after said, let us make man in our image. And then he said, and it is not good for man to be alone. We are made for community. So what would it look like to step into community, into God's beloved family? Of course, in Scripture, God's solution to the problem of isolation and separation is a family. It's, it's a man and a woman. He says, I want to make you into one. And that, it, the storyline of Scripture traces literally the genealogy, the bloodline of a family, the family of Abraham. And then the fam- family of Abraham, through all its twists and turns throughout the story of the Old Testament, finds its fulfillment, the family, in, in this child who is born in the New Testament, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And it, it, Jesus Christ is presented as the fulfillment of the family of Abraham. He is the true son of Abraham. That's, that's the first line of the New Testament. And so what we're going to do today is to dive into the teachings of Jesus on family. Just a few of them. And we're going to do it in the Gospel of Mark. So you don't have to turn very far. We're just going to stay right there in Mark. Jesus talks a lot about family. But he, the way he does it is actually countercultural today to our individualist culture that Michael was alluding to. And he does it in a way that's really countercultural in his own day, to the collectivist culture that he was born into. So, Mark chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to them those he wanted, and they came with him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus called a community to himself. He, he was saying, I, I want you to be with me. The language that we sometimes use in the New Testament is disciples. They are disciples called to a, the person of Jesus together. Disciples, a community, apprentices, a f- fellows in a fellowship, residents. There's a lot of ways to talk about what Jesus is doing, but he's inviting people to be with him, and by being with him, they have to be with one another. He's, he's choosing them to walk with him, to apprentice after him, to learn the way 
of Jesus by being with Jesus. But then look who he calls. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Guys, how cool would it be to get a nickname from Jesus? I mean, I hope one day he gives me a nickname. And I hope it's not just... um, one of those backhanded nicknames that these guys are getting. <laughs> because every one of their nicknames is like some personality flaw that Jesus also sees as a gift. But that's what I fear. If he gives me a nickname one day, that's what it will be. Uh, Simon, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. You see how I highlighted those names? That's because when Jesus calls these guys in particular, we already have a story from the Gospel of Mark. If you just flip over like a page or two where it is. You don't actually have to flip. Why don't I just show you? How about that? As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, this is where he called these men. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. This is a a metaphor that a lot of rabbis would use to describe calling their, their students, their disciples to them. At once, they left their nets and they followed him. The next story is very similar. This is James and John. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee. They left their father in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Now, this is nothing new in our culture, right? Everybody leaves their father. It's part of what we call growing up in the United States. Um, You have to go find yourself somewhere, we seem to think. That is not the case in the first century Galilee that we're looking at here. Nobody left their father. What does your father do for a living? Well, that's what you're going to do for a living and your kids and your kids for a thousand years. If you keep having children, they're just going to do what you did. You're going to stay and live in this home. And if you need to, you'll add on a room to the house. and It'll just be this big familia. Um, Here we go, Reed. Um, In Kanto, you know, it's... We were looking for Disney movies for me to critique, and we're like, maybe I'll just save some of that later uh, to follow up on Elsa last week. But here's one commentator. Um, He says, in traditional cultures, you get your identity from your family. And so when Jesus says, I want priority over your family, that's drastic. In our individualistic culture, on the other hand, saying goodbye to our parents isn't a big deal. But for Jesus to say, I want priority over your career, or I want priority over your family, that's drastic. Jesus is saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me, becomes the supreme passion of your life. Everything else comes second. Do you see how startling this would have been in that culture for men to leave their families? In a family-centered culture, not an individualistic culture. To leave their families and to follow Jesus. All right, back to chapter 3. So we, we saw Simon and Peter, James, John, and Andrew, how they were called. But Mark doesn't tell us how the rest of them were called, but we do know something about these men. Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, the tax collector, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I highlighted the names Matthew and Simon because of just how different these guys are. Matthew is a tax collector working on behalf of the Romans. Simon is a zealot, um, which is basically the people who are violent revolutionaries against the Romans. 
These people have, apart from their, their Jewish identity and their ethnicity, they have very different ways of bringing in the kingdom of God. But Jesus invites them into the same family. They are, as um, one commentator says, they're natural enemies. They're natural enemies, but because they are called to Jesus, they are now family. Not only friends, they are now family, despite their being natural enemies. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. This is it's pretty amazing. Let's keep going in Mark chapter 3, though. So what happens as soon as Mark introduces the 12 for the first time? Here, here are my 12 apostles. Here are my people, my community that's surrounding me. They have left their father and they've come to me. How does his family respond? Look at 20. Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered. That's Oikos, by the way. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Has your family ever had an intervention for somebody in the family? You just nod your head if that's happened. I was just talking with someone in the break where it was like, yeah, family, you know, this. Talking with somebody last night, same thing. This, they were like, we've got to get this guy in line. He seems to be thinking that he's creating a new family and it's embarrassing our family. We've got to put a stop to this. So they said, he's out of his mind. Now, why do they say this? In the context, he's just created a family. And it's so countercultural that the people looking on are saying, what is he doing? His own family saying he's out of his mind. Jesus is doing something startling to them. Um, so they try to take charge of Jesus. Uh, it's utterly subversive and countercultural. So uh, skip a few verses. We're going to skip the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit section for this morning. We may come back to that another day. And we'll get to what, what you read this morning with your beautiful baby on, on a day where we're doing beloved family. How cool was it that we had a, a baby swaddled and little Betsy coming up for, to help Hunter? Um, it was a cool morning. All right. Verse 31, then Jesus, his mother and his brothers arrived at the house and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. The reason I highlight these is just because of the beautiful little irony. Those are the same verbs that Jesus did earlier when he sent and called his disciples to create his family. And now his family is doing the same bag. All right, that's neither here nor there. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Do you see the expectation of the people? They're thinking, Mom's here, you've got to go talk to her. Now, in Mark 2, there's this amazing story where a paralyzed man shows up and there's no room in the house. It's a similar situation. There's no room in the house. Do you know what nobody says? Nobody says, hey, Jesus, the paralyzed man is here to see you. They don't interrupt him for that. They do interrupt him for this. Because culturally, it's required by law to honor your father and mother. And if you dishonor your father and mother in significant ways, the punishment isn't like 30 days in prison. It's a public stoning. Your mom's here. Your, your brothers and your family is here. This bears interruption. No, nobody's lowering her from the roof so that she can get Jesus' attention because they know that he... He has an obligation here, but that's, that's not where Jesus goes. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? I, I just can't imagine like the jaws dropping in the room. He's, he's sitting 
and it says that the people are circled around him. He looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Ah, this is it's so countercultural in that day. Um, but I also want to connect it to how it's countercultural in our day. You see, Jesus is he's in a what's sometimes called a collectivist or a strong group culture. Now, we are not. We're in an individualist culture. And so we may hear Jesus and say, yeah, I, my needs or my faith is elevated, elevated above the needs of the group or of the church. But that's not what Jesus is saying either. He, he keeps that strong group kind of mentality intact, but he now redefines it around himself. So he still says family is important. But now he says, but I get to define what family is. Not just I get to define. Look, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. What's amazing is that there's room for the zealot and the tax collector. There's room for the Jew and the Gentile. There's, there's room for everybody provided they're keeping God's will. There, there is a single path into this family and it's through this person of Jesus. You don't get Jesus by right. You don't get Jesus by blood except his own. So he's redefining family around himself in startling ways. Um, one commentator, he says, the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisaged loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. I think that's right. But this isn't the only time Jesus talks about family. If you skip ahead a few pages to Mark chapter 10, we see in verses 28 and 29, he's just given this really hard teaching on family and on marriage. And it's kind of scared his disciples. Jesus' view of marriage is so elevated, even in his very family-centered culture, that Peter's like, oh no, what do we do here? And then he gives some warnings about following him and about money. And Peter says, we've left everything. He's given warnings. You've got to really consider the cost of what it's going to be like to follow me. And Peter says, we've left everything. This is what Jesus tells him. Truly, I, I tell you, no one who has left home, oikos, who has left their network, their, their people, their, their family, or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. So it's not just that you, you forsook family obligation. It's that you're giving up your inheritance rights. Like your place in the land, you're also giving it up. If you've left that for me in the gospel, that you will fail to receive a hundred times much in this present age. Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Do you see what Jesus is saying about family? When you choose me over family, it's a hundred times better. And as, as a church planter, I'm, I feel so humbled by this. And as an American, as an American Christian who knows kind of the experience of what, what we've been through in, in some tr- of our church experiences, this gives me pause. 
Because for most people, the church is not 100 times better than family. But it's supposed to be. And there is a reality where it is, where we've seen these beautiful pockets like Hunter was, was describing at the table. Um, like William and I were kind of talking about when we took the table together. Um, I didn't plan to say this, but uh, William showed up in Memphis a couple of years ago. And, I mean, we heard that you moved to town from a mutual brother and sister. But the reason that we connected is because we were brothers in Christ. We didn't know one another, but we're family. And family's called to act like it. Um, it's it's this, this reality that I have brothers and sisters that I don't even know their names from all places all over the world. And it's, it's so amazing what Jesus Christ has accomplished in making us family. A band of natural enemies who have now been made brothers and sisters. And we get fathers and mothers. And that's how the church is designed to be. That is actually how we're trying to design oikos. Design, program. I mean, we can talk about these, these languages, but it's trying to pursue what is actually a spiritual reality. That we are family a multi-generational family, a multi-ethnic family, a multi-faceted family. And it is, and it will be forever, a hundred times better. So it strikes us as rude when Jesus says, if you've left your family, this is a hundred times better. But for people like Peter who left their families, this was a great comfort. For people who made the decision to follow Christ at the cost of, of relationships, this is worth it, he's saying. Because you get really a, a beloved family. Oh, how beautiful. So, what would it look like at Oikos for this to, to step in? How could we actually start practicing this? Given our past experiences and given what we hope and aspire to, how do we bridge the gap between those realities? I, I think... I'm going to try to simplify it with just a couple of things. The, the first one is that family life is a meal. So I think the primary way that will be at Oikos, and I think it is in Scripture, the primary way where the spiritual reality that we are brothers and sisters is lived out is at the table. Yes, the, the Sunday table, but also our tables, the tables that are in our Oikos, in our homes with our families. The family table is, is the catalyst for living out God's beloved family. It's really simple. It's eat together. Share a meal together. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing constantly with his family, with his brothers and sisters, whoever is doing the will of God. He's sitting at a, at a table with them. Family life is a meal. That's where the kids and the grandparents and the parents in the faith experience the multi-generational reality. That's where um, black and white and Latinas and Latinos are experiencing the multi-ethnic family. That's where we're experiencing the, the multifaceted family of how our unique gifts are exercised in the body of Christ. The table is the foundational environment where we live and where we worship as a family. So a couple of things on that. One... Family life is messy, and then two, family life isn't magic. So if family life is primarily experienced in a meal, 
it's important to know that it's messy. And I'm not just talking about dishes. But it is dishes. You know, there is a mess that has to get cleaned up. Um, and so sometimes family life and, and the cost of a meal and kind of the burden of being together, it can feel like a lot. And so Kelsey and I have embraced this phrase, scruffy hospitality, uh, to give you permission and me permission to not have my house in total order whenever we invite people into it. Because family is there, I don't know if you know this, family is there even when the house isn't clean. And if we're family, that means we need to be in your house when it's not clean. Otherwise, like, why are you treating me like I'm somebody besides family? Scruffy hospitality is a phrase that gives us permission to have a little scruff around, to have a little dust on the floor, to have some dishes in the sink. Because I think it's more important to be together than it is to, like, have the etiquette correct. Because we're family. It's messy. But it's also messy because family is the place, yes, where we're formed and healed, but family is also the place where we're hurt. And family life is where we learn to forgive each other. Because family life is where our self-centeredness comes up. And we start recognizing kind of the obnoxious things that other people in the family are doing. Um, we date for a long time in our culture before we get married because we're kind of trying to test the waters of how messy is this person going to be to, to live with. But even after we get married, after years of dating and engagement, normally there's still a like, this is hard. This is messy. And in family, we learn how to forgive. In family, it's, it's like roommates who discover like, ah, this person, you always have to do that. And then you go and you vent to your friends and you tell them about this roommate that you have. Some of you are touching other people and I don't know if that's like because they're really messy or because you are. Cheryl, I don't know if you're the messy one. Um, it's, it's messy. But in the mess is where we actually learn how to live as a family. It comes with it. Um, group researchers, they, they say there are group dynamics that start with forming. And it's like everything is positive. Sometimes we call this the honeymoon phase. And at Oikos, we are totally in the honeymoon phase. But what happens after forming is storming. And it's where inevitably there's going to be conflict. Things get messy. Some of you are in a welcome home group. You just formed a couple of weeks ago, and it was pretty exciting for me. You know, you start listening to people, and it's like, this is comfortable. I, I can imagine where this is going. But in a couple of weeks, you're going to look over and say, why does that person always have to chew their food like that? Like, really? Why do you always show up like seven minutes late? Why do you always do this? Why do you always do this? You, you start noticing those things. But the, the beauty of family is that it's, it has a power to pervade even past the, the conflicts that are coming. And if they haven't yet, praise God, but no, they are. And praise God for that. Because in those conflicts, that's where he's going to be doing the transforming work on our hearts. Family life is a meal. Family life is messy. God is working through both of those. Last one, family life isn't, isn't magic. It, it's not some potion. It's time. It's time. It's commitment. It's consistency. It's not magic. It's an enduring relationship, which means you have to keep showing up consistently, prioritizing it. It's eating together. It's not magic. It's love. It's not magic. It's showing up. 
It's a pretty simple formula that time plus intimacy equals transformation. That's where we learn the new trust structures. And that's where God forms us and reforms us. The more, the more time and the, the more love we experience as a family, I think the deeper God will change our hearts. And the reality is that he can't change it hardly any other way because remember where we started, that's how we're formed. We're not formed through ideas or books. We're formed through people. Through the experience of being loved, we come to know how to trust. And when we learn how to trust, how we relate is how we relate. By trusting others, we learn how to trust God. By loving others, we learn how to love God. How can you say, that I hate my brother who I have seen, that I love God who I haven't seen. There is a one-to-one correlation between how we relate horizontally and how we relate vertically. Our spiritual lives and our family lives will both be transformed through the sense of beloved family. At Oikos, welcome home is a temporary thing. It's like an orientation. But we do intend to design groups in an ongoing way that we'll call oikos groups. And come May, Lord willing, come May, we will launch oikos groups that will probably look a lot like your welcome home groups. And part of what we want to do is to get us in homes every week sharing a meal. In home every week sharing. We're going to be doing other things too. Sometimes we'll play games. Sometimes we'll study. On the first Sunday of the month, I don't know if you know this, on the first Sunday of the month, we intend to worship in homes, at tables, and meals. And so we'll share a meal together, and then at the end of the meal, we'll have the bread and the cup. And and we'll sing, yes, it won't be like what it is here, because we're trying to really lean into family. That's who we are. And that experience of family, I think, can have a transforming effect. It's going to be hard, it's going to be messy, it's going to have conflict, and we will work through it because of the way that we've been shown how to love. A band of natural enemies formed into a family of brothers and sisters. What could this, what could this look like? Um, I was sent, Taylor Davidson is out of town this week, but he sent me an article from one of my favorite sports writers named Jonathan Charks. Jonathan writes for a website called The Ringer. Sports, pop culture. But I like Jonathan because of two things. Um, one reason I like Jonathan is because even though he writes for a sports and pop culture website, like run by Bill, I mean, it's a, it's a big website. He is an explicit, like open believer. He interacts as a Christian. He's not just a sports reporter. He is a Christian sports reporter. It informs how he talks on a podcast and in his writing. It's a beautiful picture of that integration that we were talking about um, last week. Jonathan, another reason I like him is because of, I'm pretty sympathetic to where he's at in life. Uh, last year he was diagnosed with cancer, and it's a really rare, extremely deadly form of cancer. The survival rate at two years is like somewhere between, it's around 25%. He's, he doesn't know when he's going to die, but he's probably going to die fairly soon. He's a young man. He's my age. He's got a wife, and he's got a little, little kid. And he remembers what it was like uh, to have kind of a diagnosis hit a family because his dad had Parkinson's and then died of it. And just the toll that it took. But because Parkinson's, it had this delay from diagnosis to death, 
there was enough time where basically all of his dad's friends left. And when his dad finally died, they showed up to the funeral and he had no idea who they were. Let us know if you need anything. Let us know if you need anything. We're here to help. It's like, I don't even know who you are. Where, where are you now? In his piece, he, he wraps it up. In, on the ringer, talking about his life group at church. He says, I was nervous the first time I went to a life group. Should I just say welcome home group? Um, he said, I joined a church the week before, and one of the pastors, a few guys older than me, invited me. It was a smaller group of people who met at this house every week. He's trying to tell just regular readers on the ringer what a life group is. That's ironic to me. Um, I think you know what it is, right? Um, I remember walking up to the door and not knowing what to expect. He's like, I, there was like this icebreaker. It was a little awkward. And then they said, are you going to come back? And he's like, I said, yeah, so I guess I have to now. He says, uh, nothing exciting happened. They sang a few songs. They talked about the Bible for a while. At the end of the meeting, everyone paired off to pray for each other. And he asked me what I thought of the group. Um, he's not even sure. He says, that was seven years ago. Some of those strangers from that house that first night are now some of my closest friends. It didn't happen overnight. It took me a long time to feel comfortable. I usually came after the life group, had already started and left after it was over. But I was seeing the same people every week. And I was telling them about my problems and they were telling me about theirs. And do that for long enough and you become friends. You, you get to know enough people that way. And life group goes from being an obligation to something you look forward to. Making the commitment to come every week is still hard. There are always other things to do. Sometimes you're tired, you have a long day, you just don't feel like it. It gets even harder once you get married and you have kids. Nor are the people always easy to deal with. You may not have a lot in common. You have to search for things to talk about. You can be vulnerable with people and they don't always respond how you would expect. You certainly won't always agree with them on how they see the world. The past two years haven't been easy since this diagnosis. Our life, life group met over Zoom for a while. People ask me, whether I have to be more careful because of my condition and the pandemic. He says, but it's really the opposite. I don't have the luxury of waiting for life to get back to normal. This might be the only time I have left. And so I can't imagine not being at a life group at this point. Human beings are supposed, aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd. It's like the song from Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Life group is a different kind of insurance. People talk a lot about medical insurance and life insurance when you get sick. But relational insurance is far more important. I don't need my dad's money, but I could have used some of his friends. He says of his son, I don't want Jackson to have the same childhood that I did. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses. Why there are so many of them at his games, I hope he gets sick of them. You may not care about the ringer or Jonathan, but it was pretty amazing to me that on a sports and pop culture website, somebody's making a case for life groups in a way that was like, that'll, that'll preach. And that's what I want for my kids. Not in case I die necessarily. But because of the formational effect of knowing a, a community that, that loves them, and in our difference, the reliability of, of being there, at the table, over time, I believe the Lord's work will be done. Uh, let's, let's end with another table scene, and then I'll have you stand and bless you. Do you remember how the Gospel of Mark ends? How the life of Jesus ends? 
He's at a table with his friends. It says they're reclining at the table. They're, they're literally like in one another's bosom, laying on each other, sharing a meal. And it's at this meal that Jesus says, it's a, it's a family meal, it's Passover, it's a family tradition, it's Thanksgiving, it's 4th of July, all rolled under one. And at this family meal, Jesus says, I want you to take and eat, this is my body. I want you to take this cup and drink, this is my blood. And then at that family meal was where Judas steps up, says, I got some things to do, and he leaves. It's, isn't it just incredible? how Jesus was betrayed by those who loved him and by his, his family. And yet, because he was betrayed, it actually leads forward to the day, the next day, where he gives his, his body and he gives his blood to be a ransom so that we too could be invited into his family. I said earlier that bloodline doesn't get you to Jesus. <laughs> you, you're not related to Jesus by right. Even his own mom has to have a different way in. And it's at the table where we discover what it is. And it's at the table where we're invited in. Um, praise God that he has made us family through the death of Jesus, our King. Would you stand up? I want to bless you with a, a prayer from Ephesians about family. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Amen. God bless.